0: Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you are like me, but I like to know that I'm doing things the right way. I'm the kind of guy that if I'm going to Ikea and I'm putting something together, I'm following the directions to the T, I'm counting that I have all of that bolt before I begin the process. I, if I'm cooking, I'm using a recipe to the T. There's none of this like, oh, we'll just add that, or we'll add that. It's not how it works. There's a recipe for a reason. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I Google map my way home from work. like <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I like to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Lent is a serious and sober season right Um, and so we want to make sure I want to make sure I'm doing it the right way we're joining the Israelites on their sanctifying journey through the barren wilderness we're sitting with Jesus in the desert as we too are tempted to find sustenance or significance or satisfaction in anything but the living God And this is a season of reflection of repentance, preparation, and purification. And today, if we will allow it, we are given a great gift to shirk our natural inclinations, our near pathological avoidance of mortality, and to reckon with the condition of your heart and my heart. Like the eerie skeletal finger of the ghost of Christmas yet to come, in its greatest iteration, I might add, the Muppet Christmas Carol. Ash Wednesday directs our attention towards a tombstone with our name on it, of our own making. And we are left to consider if these are the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only. And of course, it's not only our bodies that are subject to decay, but what of the world in which we live as if spy balloons and threats of world wars or toxic train derailments or the biggest snowstorm in a century. Um, (laughs) If that wasn't enough, or the seemingly never-ending stream of illnesses that my children delight to bring home from school. It does at times feel as though Pandora's box is irreversibly open, and we're left to throw up our hands and ask what can we possibly do to undo the brokenness? All around us now I come from a church tradition that is fond in the face of such brokenness of tragedy and suffering of turning to the back of the book as it were things might be hard now but we know how the story ends is the familiar battle cry and it's in the moment I want to say yes but on the one hand yes let's take a moment and turn to the back of the book and and Isaiah does that in our reading today gives us a bit of that vision uh, in verses 8 and 9 and following. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Amen. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and you'll cry out for him, and he will answer, Here I am. He echoes it in 10 and 11. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday, and he will guide you continually. And satisfy your desire in scorched places, make our bones strong, and we shall be like watered gardens, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus, we want that. We really want that in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, our city, our state, our nation. Let your righteousness and your glory encamp about us, O God, shepherd us sustain us, satisfy us with your presence. But how on earth do we get there? How do we get there? So that's one strategy to set our gaze on the day of the Lord and allow that vision, that beatific vision to sustain us. But that alone can't be enough. As we consider and we yearn for and we expect that glorious conclusion for God to finally put to rights everything that's gone wrong, horribly gone wrong. We can't ignore the role that we have to play right now. And our writer in Isaiah 58 does give us a helpful pattern as we await the consummation of history. So the Jews have returned from exile in Babylon, and things are a mess. Yes, they're home, but still their land remained under foreign rule. Their neighbors were at best suspicious of them, And at worst, hostile to these strange monotheists, perhaps not unlike your neighbors. And they were still very much spread out. Some remained in Babylon, some were in Egypt, and some had begun to resettle in the land that God had given them. And so yearning for God to make things right, they did what good religious people do. They pray and they fast. Verse 2 of Isaiah 58 they seek me daily and delight to know my ways our writer here he has no problem with their religious observance he's not critiquing the fact that they do this they went to the, all the services they prayed all the prayers but at the end of the day they're still wondering why God hasn't noticed their fast right why their prayers remain unanswered. And so here we are now at the onset of Lent, about to begin this season of heightened prayer and fasting. And how do we move through this season faithfully and be able to look back with all humility and honesty and say that we encountered God in a meaningful way this Lent? I think as far as Isaiah is concerned, we find the crux of what went wrong in verses 3 and 4, right? Why have we fasted and you see it not? We humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. It's the worst sort of religious hypocrisy, isn't it? Oh sure they're going to church they're doing their religious duties they're they're even their hearts are in it but their hearts once they depart are consumed with wickedness and self-interest love of neighbor the sort of love that's built into the godhead is completely absent that that god who is eternally giving of himself to himself in that great dance that Pastor Rick referred to the past couple weeks. For whatever reason, Isaiah's hearers haven't recognized that their sinfulness, and therefore their repentance and their worship has implications horizontally, socially, as well as vertically. And maybe that's your temptation today. In fact, after all, you're the ones who made it to Ash Wednesday service during a snowstorm. I I did too, so we're in it together. Maybe you find it easy to get wrapped up in all the religious things, the church services, the liturgies, the the theology, the revival, or whatever good thing it might be, and you forget that Christ came for sinners, and such were some of you. You see, in ancient times, it was normal, even expected in a holy place, an altar, a place of worship, that there would be statues of the god or gods to be worshipped in that place. And of course, Jews, for Jews, image-making and idol-worshiping was forbidden because God had already made in humanity the images of himself that he wanted, And so it was in Isaiah's day, as God's people were busy about their vertical worship, begging God to restore their land, to set things to rights, that they continued to believe the primordial lie of do what you want, you and your fellow image bearer will not surely die. Even as they go to church on Sundays and they do the perfect Lent, they ignore God's heart of justice and are filled with cruelty and unchecked anger and malice, quarrels, arguments, violence, apathy for the poor, the hungry, the homeless. What little power this once dominated people possessed in their return from exile, they use for their own self-preservation with no sense of mutual responsibility or care for those in their midst. In short, their fasting was transactional not transformational. Now, conversely, maybe there are those of you for whom justice, social causes, works of mercy come very naturally. And it might be at this point a, a temptation for a bit of self-congratulation or at least a sigh of relief. Whew, at least I'm not like those super religious people. But our gospel passage warns that even concern for justice and for the poor can fall prey to sin. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So in, 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 this, in the same sense, it's the same sin as our Isaiah passage, except social justice replaces religious devotion. It's still self-serving. It's still self-interest. Good works morph into a kind of moralism that once again feeds our deep need to be right, to be okay, to be good. I suspect that all of us, at one point or another, myself included, are guilty of treating God like our own personal genie in one way or another. I mean, it's a crude way of talking about it. We wouldn't really think about it in terms like that, but implicitly we believe that if we're good about going to church, if we do our religious activities, we volunteer, perhaps we serve on a team, perhaps we, we serve in the community. We, we avoid the things we ought to be avoiding then the net result is God will look favor upon, favorably upon me and things will go well. I know that as a parent, I am far too guilty, far too often of parenting in a way that makes my kids think that the way they behave or don't behave is how is whether or not dad will be happy or not happy with them. And so we began by by saying that looking to the back of the book isn't sufficient to sustain us. And and simply looking to religious devotion or concern for justice alone aren't enough to save us. So what's the path forward? I think Paul in our letter to the Corinthians describes a different way. Instead of being consumed with self, consumed with our needs consumed with our reputation, concerned, consumed with, the, with amassing the power that we, we crave to order our lives. He says that we are as servants of God. We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, a purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. He goes on and on. And Paul is describing in that passage sort of his rubber stamp of, of his ministry, as it were. It's descriptive of a life that's the exact opposite of self-interest. And so if you want to do the perfect Lent All you have to do is read the Corinthians passage and do that. Super easy, no big deal. Just imprisonments, couple riots. Um, You shouldn't start them. Um, Maybe (laughs) survive them. No. No, that's not how it works. How does he achieve it? How does, how does he, how does he achieve this? It's a remarkable paragraph. I have no idea, not only how he wrote that, but how he lived that life. I think he gives us the clue in verse 20. We implore you. He says, We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus already completed the perfect fast. Jesus gave of himself and campaigned against evil unto death. And in our being reconciled to him, in our unification with him, we are free from needing to treat good things as ultimate. This Lent, no matter what you choose to do, whether it's fast from something or include some new devotional or type of prayer, Let it be a vehicle to bring you to Christ. I I was reading a, a little story from a desert father, and he said this It was said about an old man that he endured 70 weeks of fasting. That's a long time, eating only once per week. He asked God about certain words in the Holy Scripture, but God did not answer him. And and then he said to himself, look, I have put in this much effort, but I haven't made any progress, so now I will go to see my brother and ask him. When he had gone out, closed the door and started off, an angel of the Lord was sent to him and said, 70 weeks of fasting have not brought you near to God, but now that you are humbled enough to go see your brother, I have been sent to you to reveal the meaning of the words." Then the angel explained the meaning, which the old man was seeking and went away. Along with fasting, there must be humility. Fasting opens the way. It is a means to an end and not the end of itself. And so this Lent, I implore you to look to Jesus, to be reconciled to Jesus, to let us lay aside every weight And sin that clings so closely to run with endurance the race that was set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and even now is seated at the right hand of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.